Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, economist, co-founder of Democracy and Work, his most recent book, Understanding Socialism, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. So seven million people in more than 20 states got a substantial raise this week because those states raised their minimum wage. In the case of Missouri, it went from 7.25 all the way up to 11, I think it was 11.35 an hour. That's a really substantial stimulus, an injection at the, at the economic bottom, which according to Keynesian theory, is the best way to stimulate an economy. It's the most lasting way to stimulate an economy. It generates demand. We're seeing the economy seeming to be strong and seeming to even strengthen as we continue into this year. Could it be that this is one of the major factors as to why? Well, I think the best way to answer that is to say yes and no. Uh, What we've had is an economy that really isn't strong. It's an extremely unbalanced economy. Since the crash in 2008 and 9, the terror of the people running this economy was that this would become a generalized depression, like it did after the crash of 1929. And so to prevent that, they did two things. A massive stimulus program started early in the Obama administration, seven to $800 billion injection of government spending, and an even more dramatic pumping up of the money supply and dropping interest rates to historic lows, even below zero. What that did was pump up the economy, but because of the 30 years of growing inequality in the United States, it really only pumped up the top 10%. The rest of the people in this society didn't get much of a benefit from that. And so the inflation that we had as a result with all that money didn't take place in the economy as a whole, but it took place in the stock market where prices have gone basically crazy as they continue to do because all that money, which doesn't find its way into the economy, we haven't increased our production very much and we haven't increased our general price level very much, but we have had an inflation uh, for the people who own stocks, the top 5% who own the overwhelming majority. And that is being called the great economy because if you have stocks, it is indeed great. If you have a corporation with lower taxes from Mr. Trump, it's indeed great. But for the average people, as their politics and their voices tell us, it isn't great. They have lost good jobs and had them replaced with bad ones. Their benefits and pensions and all of those things are being squeezed. So given all of that, yes, it is the case that those states that are raising the minimum wage are doing something finally that can make the economy, not the stock market, but the economy from the bottom up. I like to call this trickle up economics when you help the people at the bottom who are, after all, the vast majority that might stimulate the economy in a way that you are hoping for. The problem is that it's only that handful of states that we have the absolutely scandalous reality that the last time the minimum wage was raised in the United States was in 2009. 
that we've gone over a decade, every one of which prices went up, except for the minimum wage, which didn't go up, which effectively meant that we diminished the standard of living of the poorest among us. So if there is some effect, it is despite the federal government and particularly the Republicans who oppose this all the time, and we are left to hope that there'll be some stimulus from those states that have taken the step to do what the federal government failed to do. Are you suggesting that the reason that the stock market has gone up, or the principal reason, is that there are more rich people have more money and they need a place to put that money, so there's more demand for stocks, and arguably corporations doing buybacks, they're buying back their own stock, they're adding to that demand for stock, and when something is in demand, its price goes up. So we're not actually seeing an increase in the value of these stocks, and we're not seeing these companies you know, have greater productivity or produce more goods. We're simply seeing an, basically an inflation happening with the price of the stocks. Absolutely, and the reason for that, you don't have to look very hard. Whether you're a wealthy investor or you're a corporation that wealthy investors invest in, you have now no incentive to increase production. The American people, the mass of people, their wages have been stagnant for decades. They overcame that for a while by a borrowing binge starting in the 80s and 90s and in the first decade of this century. But they're now tapped out. That's why we had a crash in 2008, because you don't raise the wages and now they can't borrow anymore since it doesn't take a Ph.D. in economics to understand you can't keep borrowing if the underlying capacity to repay, which is your real wage, is not going anywhere. And so we're at a point where there's no incentive left for corporations to invest in producing more. They're having trouble selling what they can sell. That's why they can't raise prices of goods because there's no market out there to basically pay for it. So, yes, they take all the money that they earn, the profits that they get from the businesses they have, plus all the extra stimulus from the federal government, plus all the extra money from the Federal Reserve, and they put it in the only place that it makes sense for them to put it. And here's the intriguing thing about a stock market. The more people put money into the stock market and drive up the prices, the greater the incentive for everybody else to do the same thing, to get in on this roller coaster as it goes up, driving the prices of the stock market way above any underlying value, which people who look at the stock market are all commenting on left, right, and center. And everybody knows that this craziness will come to a very unhappy end and that the postponement of dealing with it only makes the likelihood of a bad downturn so grim that, for example, Tom, this last week in San Diego was the annual meeting of the American Economics Association. People who are not radical or critical, to say the least, but even they were full of panels saying that things look very grim going forward because of this crazy imbalance between the stock market on the one hand and the mass real economy on the other. Yeah, back in the, I think it was in the early 1920s, Alfred Ponzi set up an operation in Pie Alley, a back alley in, in Boston, where he said that he was buying post-World War One mail coupon stamps, basically, from foreign countries. And as their currency went down, these stamps, which could still arguably buy the passage of a letter across the oceans, was going up. And so he said, he told people he was investing in foreign postal things. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. And, uh, but he wasn't, actually. He was simply taking new people's, you know, paying off old people with new people's money. And thus right. came the phrase uh, Ponzi scheme. I mean, it sounds like what you're describing with the stock market, where the price keeps going up and up and up because more and more people are throwing more and more money into the market, is a late-stage Ponzi scheme, is it not? Absolutely. It's, a, it's a, a crazy situation in which everybody has an incentive to get in. Because I'll give you an example. If you're a hedge fund operator, if you're a bank that is managing some rich family's money, You don't want to invest in the real economy because it's not going anywhere. You want to invest in the stock market because there you can make the 10, 20, 30 percent per year gains that everybody wants you to make. There's no other way to do that. So you go in. That means everybody else's 
bet on the stock market is turning out to be a good one. That encourages more people to do it, and it's a self-fulfilling kind of snowball. But it, as it gets further and further away from the underlying economy, it's only a matter of time before all of these companies start reporting the difficulties. Well, let me give you a concrete example. Last week, Borden's, one of the most important milk uh, dairy companies in the United States, declared bankruptcy. Why? Because people having changed their diets, they want oat milk instead of cow milk, etc., etc., they're having some difficulty. Normally, they could get through that, but they've borrowed so much money at low interest rates, they've seen such an inflation of their stocks over the years, that they got heavy, and now they can't handle this downturn. Hmm. You multiply that by a few others, and you're going to have a conflagration as everybody realizes that they own stocks that are not worth what they paid for them, and that they're sitting on debts that the borrowers cannot repay. Somebody called in the show last week and said, when the Fed engages in, in uh, participates in the repo market, the overnight repurchase market, they're literally throwing into this market billions of dollars or perhaps even fractions of trillions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. And where does that money come from and does it get repaid and how does it interact with the banks themselves? Does that money in some way add to banks' profitability? or not? How does all that work? And then also in the Axios newsletter this morning, in fact, they were talking about how the, the Dallas Fed president, Robert Kaplan, yesterday in public remarks said that he felt that the Fed's actions at injecting all this money into the economy, or at least into the banking system, and also at keeping uh, low uh, interest rates, uh, what some would call artificially low, that they're basically goosing the stock market and other asset prices, which presumably would mean you know, like gold and oil and things like that. And I wanted to talk with you about that, too. Where does the Fed's money come from? How does it flow? Who makes money off it? What does it all mean? The Federal Reserve is the, the peculiar name for the American Central Bank. In other countries, it's called, you know, the Bank of England, the Bank of France, and things like that. It's historical why we don't call it the Bank of the U.S. So we changed it because we had some troubles in the 19th century with that bank. And so we called it in 1913 when it got going here over 100 years ago. We called it the Federal Reserve. But the basic responsibility of the Federal Reserve is two things to control the quantity of money in circulation on the one hand, and to do it in such a way as to, quote, maintain price stability. That is a nice way of saying try to avoid either an inflation when prices zoom up or a deflation when prices zoom down. The Federal Reserve, therefore, is given an incredible amount of power because, in effect, it decides how much money there is. It doesn't do that by itself because in our system we permit private banks to likewise create money by literally saying to a potential borrower of money, the way we'll do it is we will establish an account for you. We will tell you that it now has $15 million in it, and you can begin to spend by writing checks and that's simply a stroke, a keystroke on a computer that a bank is allowed to do. There are regulations and so on governing it. But in effect, the Federal Reserve either pumps money in by lending money to the banks or by buying from the banks the Treasury securities that the banks previously bought from the government. There's a variety of ways of doing it. But the bottom line, because it's not worth getting caught in the weeds, is that the Federal Reserve has the option to increase or decrease the quantity of money in circulation in cooperation with banks. Hmm. What that repo market problem was over the last several months it was a little bit like, and I mean this parallel, with the subprime mortgage crisis back in 2007. It's a scary development. Suddenly, interest rates in this specialized credit market called the repo market spiked up, and the Federal Reserve got scared that rising interest rates would hamper borrowing and thereby undercut the economy. Mr. Trump got even more worried about it. 
because a downdraft in the economy would be deadly for his reelection effort. And between those two phenomena, they started pumping money into the repo market. But markets are all linked. If you pump in money in one place, that money can quickly move from one market to another. And this is how we'll answer your second question. It could, of course, happen, and that would be the fantasy of the, of the economists that run our society, that pumping extra money in will lead that money to be put in the hands of individuals who will buy more goods and services, companies that will produce more goods and services, and thereby jobs will go up and the economy will prosper. That didn't happen, and for a simple reason. Over the last 40 years, the purchasing power of this country has been withdrawn from middle-income and poor people and concentrated in the hands of the rich. But the rich are a very small minority, and they do not buy in the way that the mass majority of our people would. So there is, in effect, no incentive for that money to go into producing goods and services to be blunt because Americans in the majority cannot afford to buy them. So where does the extra money go? Into the stock market. That mm. becomes the place to use the money. You buy shares. Everybody else is using the new money to buy shares. So the shares go up, which only incentivizes the next batch of new money from the Fed to go into the stock market to cash in. And you've seen it particularly in the last two weeks, but you've seen it before. Extra money produces an inflation, not in the goods and services market, because that's not where the money is going, but in the stock market. Huh. And for the top 5% of the American people, that looks like wealth and riches going up. They're happy. They will donate to the political forces that keep this going. And the rest of us will be spectators on a deepening inequality. Now, there are some countries that have had very low interest rates and this kind of intervention by their federal bank for decades, are there not? A Japan, for example? Absolutely. And they have the highest amount of government debt and private debt in the world. I mean, they're way ahead of the United States. That creates all kinds of difficulties. Look, I mean, the level of debt that is being created, because this money coming in is so cheap with these low interest rates and is so plentiful that basically what you have said as the monetary authority, and you've said this to the government, you've said it to corporations, and you've even said it to, to working class families, whatever economic problem you have, here's the solution. Historically unprecedented quantities of money at next to no interest rate. So what we have is an economy which for 10 years now has loaded up on debt in a way we have never seen before. So that the next economic downturn, and we're overdue to have one, is going to be very dangerous because each industry, each company, each uh, government that goes down and can't pay is going to take all the creditors that it has borrowed from down with it. I mean, I noted the company I grew up with, drinking the milk, Borden, an old company in this country, went bankrupt, and the CEO made a statement in answer to the question, why are you bankrupt? And his answer was, too much debt. Now, he said it as if debt were poured on him by some mysterious force, rather than being something he entered into a contract to acquire. But the bottom line is, any downturn that any company gets, and even worse, an economy, will now be ramified by all these debts. Now, a couple of years ago, I read a book about the 20s and 30s, kind of an economic history of the country. One of the points that they made was that there was massive, widespread debt in New York around the stock market in the 1920s, that people were allowed to buy stocks on what were called margin buys, where they would put down, you know, five or 10 percent of the value of the stock, and the bank would loan them the money to buy the stock. And that was largely regarded to be one of the things that led to the crash. Is that the same sort of thing that we're seeing right now? You said, you know, these levels of debt are Absolutely. unprecedented. 
Absolutely. We're seeing every kind of debt go crazy. And of course, if the stock markets go up the way they have, for example, in the last couple of weeks, particularly, then it becomes unbelievable what you can do. You can borrow, you put down 10 or 20 percent of the value of a stock, and then you, you know, you borrow the rest at a very low interest rate. And if the stock goes up a few percentage points, you sell it, repay the loan, and virtually walk away with a paper profit, which then induces everybody else who's aware of what you're doing to do the same thing. And that's the recipe for spiraling out of control, the way it did in the 1920s and 30s. Lots of the so-called lessons that we were supposed to have learned from the crash, like the one you just mentioned, were then eviscerated in the 30 or 40 years since. And the best example is the Glass-Steagall Act that said we should make a, you know, a, an impenetrable wall between commercial banking and investment banking. Uh, they evaded it for 20 years, then they weakened it, and finally, under Bill Clinton, uh, the Congress voted to repeal it, and now we're back in the same mess that we were back then, because we allowed the reforms after the Great Depression to be undone, and now we're facing the consequences. Now, if, if Japan and some European countries have been able to to keep this little Ponzi scheme going for years or for even a generation, why can't we? Because they operate with much more control. They do not permit the private sector, neither the banking sector nor the non-financial, non-banking sector, to operate with the level of freedom from regulation, freedom from accountability that is the hallmark of the United States, primarily, and of Great Britain secondarily. And so you get, you know, on some cases you get growth spurts because they're not held back by social responsibility. But unfortunately, the other side of that same coin is that they're free to engage in the activity that threatens us all. Remarkable. Thank you so much, uh, Professor right. Richard Wolff. Great talking with you. His most Great. recent book, Understanding Socialism, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Wolf. My pleasure. 2020, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Maine in Chicago. Maine, what's up? Uh, the Democrats, uh, no one is speaking on ending voodoo, Reagan economics. I mean, that trickle down. Mm -hmm. Without speaking on trickle down, ending trickle down economics, uh, to me, you're not really doing anything viable economically. I mean, this president just put another $1.5 trillion to the top. Right. So that's $3 trillion since Reagan. On the national yeah. credit card, yeah. Right. And he didn't even mention trickle down. So, you know, yeah. we expect something to trickle down, but, you know, until we get rid of this type of uh, economy, to me, when uh, the Democrats talk about doing this and doing that, and, and no one's speaking about ending voodoo trickle down economics, to me, it's, it's not real. 
Maine, I think you made a really, really important point. And the Democrats, you know, were I advising them, I would be saying, you guys need to educate America about the consequences of Reaganomics that we had. We were operating from 1933 up until 1981. We were operating under an economic system that was basically classical economics, Adam Smith to John Maynard Keynes, classical economics. And then Ronald Reagan in 1981 flipped us into a new economic system that was designed exclusively for the benefit of the top 10% and largely the top one-tenth of 1%. And you know, right. we call it Reaganomics or trickle-down economics or voodoo economics is what George Bush, uh, the elder, called it when he was in the primary with Reagan. And that economic system has not changed. It was held in place by, uh, well, every president, obviously Reagan and then Bush and then Clinton and then Bush and then Obama and now Trump. It's, it's, we are still in Reaganomics. And until we get out of Reaganomics, we're going to continue to have these kinds of problems. I'm with you. Thank you very much for that. Tim in Fountain Hills, Arizona. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Watching mainstream media right now, it looks like a reality show on all major channels there, you know. CNN, MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera, because that looks like, to me, like that's what the money wants it to look like, and so that's what we have. Trump being the reality TV show host that he was, he's really comfortable with that appearance. And I was wondering what you thought would have to occur to force the money out. Do you start with taking back the media, where do, you, where do you come up with the money to fight the money, Tom? Right. That's the major question. Where do you come up with the money to fight the money? It's a damn good question, and it's, it's one that Ralph Nader a few years ago wrote a book called Only the Super Rich Can Save Us Now, and his hypothesis was that because the Supreme Court in 76 and 78 said that unlimited political bribery is just fine, thank you very much, by billionaires and corporations, that it was going to take a billionaire to stop the billionaires. And been thinking about inviting him on the program to ask him whether he thinks that Michael Bloomberg is the guy that he was writing about or not. And if so, what does that say about us as a society? What does it say about the Democratic Party? You know, obviously, the two things that need to happen, Tim, are number one, we need to be applying the Sherman Antitrust Act to media as well as other industries and returning to the the laws pre-1996 that had to do with media ownership, cross-ownership of newspapers, radio stations, and television stations, and local ownership. And that would provide more competition and more diversity of voices and, and perspectives in the media generally, although it's not going to fix the problem with you know CNN or MSNBC. And then secondly, if you applied the Sherman Act, you would say that CNN and MSNBC would have to be divested from the companies that own them. So instead of AT&T owning CNN and Comcast owning uh, MSNBC, they would become independent media companies. As independent media companies, I suspect that they would not have to bow as much to the demands of the of the corporate overlords with regard to, in the case of MSNBC, don't ever mention net neutrality, and probably the case of CNN as well. AT&T doesn't like net neutrality. There are some hot button issues that they just literally never discuss because they would go against the economic interests of their owners. So, you know. Right. So what would be your suggestion regarding, you know, if you ever manage to break them loose and free from those corporate overlords and plutocrats, how would you suggest, what, what would they do to rinse the brainwashing that Thaw News has put into these? Yeah. Good luck with that, these, you know, Tim. I mean, Fox, Fox uh, News is a kingdom. The, the it's idiots, yeah, the useful yeah. idiots. Fox News is, is an empire. It's a media empire owned by a right-wing billionaire, and one of his sons is taking it over. We'll see what happens. Fascinating stuff. Tom Harvin here with you. And Kristen in Camas, Washington. Hey, Kristen. What's up? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Good. Um, I was just calling to say my husband is a FedEx pilot. Mm-hmm. And that's a bellwether company for the economy. Right. And they are definitely looking at a big, big downturn and soon. You mean independent of the normal after the holiday downturn? Yes, absolutely. Okay. They're not looking for any kind of recovery until next year. Hmm. They've stopped hiring new pilots, they've stopped buying planes, and they've cut the baseline guarantee, which is the hours that the pilots 
are guaranteed in half. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa, that's in substantial. Huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Kristen. I, I appreciate that data point. That's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan in Seattle. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? So I've got a question about this recent minimum wage increase and also seemingly larger access to health care. Right. Uh, looks like there's been some sort of increase in accessibility. And I've been so cynical about it. I've been thinking, hey, look at that. Bernie would be so happy. And then this thought struck me. Bernie would be happy, but why is this happening now when it hasn't happened in, in who knows, 10, 15 years? Part of me believes that this is the corporate 1% capitulating to the demands of the working class and giving us a little bit now to prevent a huge cost when a President Sanders would incur on them. They're not that Uh, smart, Jonathan, and they're not that strategic. (laughs) Frankly, they're just greedy. No, this is 100% being driven by Democrats. Democrats have figured out that there are, just, just just like 20 years ago, the Republicans had figured out if they put anti-abortion or prayer in school or anti-gay or anti-trans, you know, bathroom bills, things like this, if they could put those things on the ballot, that more of their base would show up to vote because they, they would, you know, enthusiastically vote for hate or fear. And the Democrats figured out that if they put marijuana legalization, raising the minimum wage, uh, you know, things like that, that, that basically extend the, the quality of life for people. If they could put those things on the ballot, then more people from their base will show up and vote. And so that's what's happened. In Missouri, for example, it was a ballot initiative in probably two-thirds. I don't have a breakdown, specific breakdown, but my sense is about two-thirds of these states. It was done because Democrats took control of the state legislatures in the election of, of uh, 2018. And in another third of them, it was because there were ballot measures in the 2018 ballot that said that, you know, starting either in 2019 or 20. 20, the minimum wage would go up. So it would be sweet if corporate America was, you know, figuring out right. that it was good for them, but not going to happen. Jonathan, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Zoe in Encino, California. Hey, Zoe, what's up? You know, I call you for therapy. Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I am a therapist mm-hmm. and I'm a human being and therapists do need therapists believe it or not. I think the oh, sure. good ones are the ones that check in on themselves so they, they don't get their own issues mixed up with their clients. Yep. I am retired now, and I want you to know that you hit the nail on the head. When you talked about terrorism and how Trump is terrorizing American people, right. and I saw this vision of bubbles, one bubble is for the people that are truly having symptoms of similar to PTSD, the anxiety, the depression, all of those things. They're not sleeping, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I will say that I have those problems. Well, and the, the la- other bubble is apathy. You've got the people that are like the little, what do you call them, hamsters going around and round and round on their little wheel because they have so much to take care of and they don't even really take in the news, the real news. And then you have your bubble of one percenters, the people that are making so much money off of all of this. And I don't understand. The stock market keeps going up, 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 up. Now, who can afford to be contributing to the stock market? Usually, you buy when it's low. You don't buy when it's high. But yet, I think somebody is feeding into that and creating this false sense of security. So the one percenters who are the greedy ones and the ones that love what the president is doing, those are the ones that are really screwing around with the rest of the bubbles. So I'm in the bubble. I appreciate you. My idea was for you to put it out there for people to identify what bubble they're in, Mm. a little reality check. And then once we do that, then we put out there we want a good psychiatrist and we want an honest attorney. And let's do a class action suit against Mr. Trump 
for creating these bubbles that we're all <laughs> okay. somehow Zoe, Zoe I got I, you know, a great suggestion. And unfortunately, we, and thank you for the call. Unfortunately, you can't sue the president like that, but your point is really well taken. And in fact, I covered this, I think it was about a week or two ago, and it was just a fascinating story. It was in, in one of the medical journals, and then it migrated from there to the mainstream press, that in the eight years prior to Trump coming into office, uh, suicides and deaths from drug abuse, if you take out the specific spike caused by Purdue Pharma promoting their pills, basically these numbers have been declining for the last eight years. And Trump comes into office and now the suicide and alcoholism and liver failure and deaths from opiate overdoses, they have all been on the rise for the last three years. And I think, Zoe, is what you were talking about. I think Americans are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder from Trump. So, you know, we'll see. Jeff in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Hey, Jeff, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Me and you talked before uh, about how farmers were getting hit by the renewable fuel standard by the EPA and also the trade war. And you asked me, how were the farmers acting and reacting? I believe the farmers now have found out they have been conned. I think they thought this trade thing was going to be resolved by now, where their markets could be stabilized. It's not. They're trying to get set up for next year thoughts and plans of how to plant, how many acres to plant, beans, and, and corn. What to plan, yeah. Plant, yeah. Yes, very much so. And now they've learned that the EPA, because Joni Ernst and Chuck Grassley have told them that Trump's got this wonderful thing, and the EPA is going to, yep, go back to the 15 billion gallons of ethanol to be mixed with the fuel. And now the EPA has come out with a new equation that may cut that standard way down. So they have been lied to over and over again. And I think now they're finally figuring out this is becoming a joke for us. Well, this is the power of the fossil fuel lobby and, you know, and and fossil fuel billionaires like Charles Koch is their influence on the EPA is substantial and on this administration. So given the choice between farmers who are producing ethanol, which actually reduces emissions from gasoline because it's mixed with the gasoline versus oil companies that don't want the ethanol because it, you know, it's diluting their their profits, essentially. The, the Trump administration is always going to choose the fossil fuel interests, and it looks like that's what's happened here, Jeff. Yeah, well, what happened, Carl Icahn, when, just after Trump was elected, had two refineries that he was a stockholder in and were setting idle. And he said, one thing I'm going to do, we're going to get our boy, Scott Pruitt, put in the EPA, and we're going to get rid of this renewable fuel standard right. because they didn't like it. Well, guess what? And guess who put Scott Pruitt in that position, Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst, because they were both senators that voted to put these guys in. By coincidence, you're senators from Iowa, one of the early primary states uh, or caucus states. So how's that going to shake out politically, Jeff, in Iowa? Uh, I I think what it should do, that they should be going after Joni Ernst and really putting that to the forefront, that the people that are hurting the farmers are the people that they voted in. Right, and she's up for re-election this year, isn't she? Chuck Grassley's retiring in two years. Am I remembering all that right? I haven't heard anything about Chuck, but she is definitely up this year, and they should be going after the Democrats about this renewable fuel standard and how they've really lied to the farmers. But what's amazing is they're trying to dissociate the EPA from the Trump administration. Yeah, like right. it was Good totally something separate. Oh, that's those environmentalists over there. Does uh, Joni Ernst have a strong Democratic challenger? I think she's got four right now. So there's a primary, a Democratic primary going on in Iowa. Fascinating. Okay, Jeff, thanks for the report from Iowa. I appreciate it. Uh, fascinating stuff. Onward we go through the fog. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Rick in Houston listening on SiriusXM. It says you disagree with me, Rick. Uh, what About what? 
Yeah, you know, your viewers are saying Trump's incompetent. The economy's the best it's been in a decade. Give, give me a $3 trillion dollar credit card, and no, I can no, show no, you what no, it looks no. like to live large, and too. I, and I know what the Democrats want is a socialist country, which is one step below communism. And people need to realize what it is. This propaganda that y'all push, Trump is very competent. He's trying to deal with China on the trade barrier that should have been done decades ago. Our politicians have sold this country out. Yeah, tra- Rick, you with regard Navy to China deals, and trade, oh, I agree with deals. you. This guy is playing with fire. This guy is incompetent. He doesn't understand the difference between tactics and strategy. You're absolutely right. One of the reasons why he's president, in, in, you know, aside from you know, Russian meddling, is that, and, and apparently UAE and Saudi meddling as well, is because he said he was going to bring jobs back from Asia. I mean, this was the biggest mistake the Democrats ever made. And most of the Democrats didn't go along with it. Most of the Democrats have always opposed NAFTA and all these other trade deals. Bill Clinton signed it, but it was negotiated by Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush. And both Reagan and Bush said, oh, yeah, this is a great thing. Let's do this. And Trump came along and said, no, it's stupid. And he was right. It was stupid. The problem is that if you want to change our trade policy and actually bring factories back home, what you have to do, and Trump yesterday or two days ago, I got an email from him saying, I brought 10,000 factories home. So I checked on Snopes. 9,500 of them have fewer than three employees. They're not actually factories. They're companies that have incorporated and checked the box saying that they are a manufacturing organization. So, no, it hasn't happened. And the reason why is because if you actually want to bring manufacturing home, you have to change the tariff structure at the level of Congress. I'm not going to build a factory. I'm not going to go out and borrow $500 million and build a factory to manufacture something in the United States that's being made in China right now unless I know that the tariff on the Chinese goods are going to last longer than one presidential term. Trump is doing this by executive order. Executive orders expire at the, functionally at the end of his term. That's the stupid way to do it. Trump has been incompetent at everything he has done. The reason the economy is rip-roaring right now and, and by the way, for the bottom 70% of Americans, it's not rip-roaring. People are making less money than they were making in the 1960s. It has been flat for decades because of Reaganomics. But for the top, you know, particularly the top 10%, they're doing great. The stock market is up because the Fed has lowered interest rates. It's that simple. And, and Trump had nothing to do with that. Uh, you could say he, he threatened Jay Powell. Sure. The exact same thing happened during the Roaring Twenties, and look what it, where it got us. It got us to 1929. So be careful what you're rubbing your hands about. You know, with every passing year, we all look older, but Plexiderm can make you look so much younger that you need a new driver's license photo. That's Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Just apply this powerful serum to problem areas and within minutes voila new younger you and the best part no surgery or botox it's all natural ring in 2020 with plexiderm for smooth younger looking skin in minutes and it goes on clear so nobody even knows you're using it leave your under eye bags and wrinkles behind with plexiderm go to plexiderm.com and use my code hartman with two n's for 50 percent off plus an additional 10 bucks off that's right half off plus an extra ten dollars off this offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998 again that's 1-800-741-7998 or visit plexiderm.com today and use my code hartman at checkout jim in solway minnesota hey tom thanks for having me you got a great show today it makes my uh point or question seem kind of trivial but as i'm discussing with people having conversations with people trying to advance the idea of uh, democratic socialism of course the first thing they do is drop the word democratic and then they revert to milton friedman and they talk about and they quote milton friedman's uh, arguments against between uh, capitalism, socialism, and I'm just looking for some ammo to come back on them but, uh, support my support for uh, democratic socialism. Okay. Uh, let's uh, let's try it out, me. Jim. You be, you be the person you're arguing with, and I'll be you. Take me on. 
Okay, uh, so I'm going to represent the capitalist Milton Friedman. Oh, you know, uh, Milton Friedman, he was, uh, he was all about capitalism, and he admitted and he acknowledged that socialism was a loser, and, and uh, everybody related with socialism was a loser, and they've, they've lost in countries all over the world, socialism's lost. Yeah, well, if you call socialism the Soviet Union, you're absolutely right. It, doesn't, it didn't work there, and it doesn't work that way. But democratic socialism encompasses capitalism. Norway is a democratic socialist country. They've got capitalism. They've got, you know, they got multimillionaires. Denmark, Finland, Germany, France, Greece. I mean, you pick your European country and several Central American countries and, and Japan. These are all democratic socialist countries. Basically, what it means is that Yes, we have Social Security that actually covers people, that, that old people can live on. We have a national health care program, so nobody has to worry about going bankrupt if they get sick. We have free college, and everybody gets educated, which actually boosts and strengthens not only our economy, but our nation. How could you possibly be opposed to that, Jim? Well, but aren't those all contrary to the, the free market that Friedman supported? Well, yeah, Friedman was crazy. He thought the government should not provide education. He didn't think public schools should be paid for. I mean, you know, he didn't think that there should be public transportation. He thought every road should be owned by some capitalist and have a toll gate on it. I don't think that's the country you want to live in, is it, Jim? Do you want to have your local fire department? You know, if you don't pay the uh, for-profit fire department, they won't come and, and put your house out if it catches on fire. Is that the world you want to live in? Seriously? But aren't we looking for the free hand, the invisible free hand of the market to control everything? Well, you know, it's kind of a bizarre quote because it comes out of Adam Smith's book, <laughs> Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. And the first words of the sentence in which, in which Adam Smith mentioned the, the invisible hand, he said, by preferring the output of domestic production to that of foreign producers. And that's how the sentence begins. So it was all about, it was all about how good protectionism is. It wasn't about, you know, hey, you should just turn your country over to some crazed billionaire. Okay. Come on, Jim, you gotta, you gotta hit me with something better than that. <laughs> All right, Are you are you ready for your debate now? I think so. Okay, good. Jim, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Charles in Morristown, uh, New Jersey. Uh, excuse me, Tennessee. Hey, Charles, what's up? What I don't understand is people in the United States let the politicians absolutely destroy their Social Security and we've paid into that. That's that needs to be taken out of the general fund. And this needs to be made known to Democrats and Republicans. Well, it was it was established as a separate fund. Well, first of all, the the Social Security Trust Fund uh, didn't exist until 1982. Um, so you could argue, I suppose, that Social Security was running through the general fund, but it was segregated for bookkeeping purposes. But the, and the Social Security Trust Fund, uh, because it's invested in treasuries, is arguably you know, government debt. But it, it was segregated to satisfy Republicans who said that, you know, oh, my God, you're going to drain the treasury uh, with this. And then the, the Democrats said, no, it's not. But I'm 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 with you on on, you know, we need to, Bernie on this program, you know, for every Friday for 11 years, over and over and over again, kept saying, we need to get the cost of living adjustment for Social Security, excuse me, to be calculated based on things that affect people on Social Security, not calculated based on, you know, uh, whether the latest iPhone has more power and a lower cost. Um, you know, it has to be on things like food and medicine and housing and transportation, you know, basic stuff that people living on Social Security need to deal with. So um, I think that, you know, and, th and that point is still well taken. We need to be pushing that. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky, what's on your mind? Oh, Tom, yeah, I had that answer for you about the conservatives and the liberals. Mm -hmm. The conservatives believe you don't deserve nothing. you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Right, and that and assumes I, you have bootstraps, that you were born into a family that has bootstraps, right? Yeah, and the, other, and the liberals are saying, hey, this country is all of ours. It should serve all of us. Yeah. Not your big tax breaks. Like that trillion and a half dollars they got back in, uh, what was it? Two years ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how can you give a trillion and a half dollars 
to the already wealthy and leave the middle class with absolutely nothing. Yeah. Well, and the people are not up in arms about this. It's driving me nuts. Yeah. I think that Americans get it. And I think that we saw the early indicator of that in the 2018 election when the Democrats took back the House of Representatives. And can you imagine, by the way, if, if Nancy Pelosi wasn't Speaker, if the Democrats hadn't taken back the House and Republicans still controlled the House of Representatives, we would know none of this. Right. All of these crimes committed by Donald Trump, by Mike Pence, by Bill Barr, by Mike Pompeo, all of these crimes would be buried. They'd be six feet underground. We would never know any of it. I mean, it's really remarkable. And I think that 2020 is going to be an even bigger sweep. But that said, don't count out. You've got foreign governments able to hack our voting systems. You've got, you know, Facebook welcoming lies. You've got, I mean, it's just, it's going to be a tough campaign season. And uh, boy, is there a lot to talk about. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I got a quick question about supply-side economics. So in supply-side economics, corporate taxes are lowered to, uh, you know, allow a company to possibly increase wages for their workers, expand their business, produce more goods. And, you that's know, the you, theory. You know, of course, that's not the reality, that. but that's the, could you that, explain that's the sales pitch. Every, could, could you explain why every time that the Republicans try this, it always fails? Because because it's, it, 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 it assumes that people do things in business for reasons that have nothing to do with business. Uh, you know, a, 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 American business, by and large, business people, by and large, are trying to maximize profits. You know, they're trying to take the owners of companies, try to take as much money out of their company as they can. The stockholders of the companies demand as much money out of the companies as possible. And, and the, you know, the CEOs and, and the larger the company, by the way, the more more problematic this becomes. And so um, when Republicans come along and say, oh, if you give these companies more money in the form of a tax cut, they will benevolently distribute that money to their employees. They know it's a lie. They know that it flies in the face of the whole reason why somebody starts a company in the first place. It's to, it's to make as much money as they possibly can. So if you cut their taxes, they're going to they're going to put more money in their pocket or they're going to buy back their own shares to increase the money that they already have in their pocket in the form of their stock. And by the way, that's exactly what happens. So, Dennis, what, what you know, just by asking the question, what you reveal is is the, the, the just the fundamental lie at the core. And thank you for the call. The fundamental lie at the core of trickle down economics. They, and this, by the way, is not the first time this happened. You know, Reagan came up with this and called it trickle town or supply side economics. You know, Art Laffer and the Laffer Curve and all this kind of BS. Stephen Moore, you know, selling this and, and coming on this program, in fact, to debate it with me 10 years ago. Um, but it's not new. Back in the, in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century, you had re Republican presidents who were using the same sales pitch, only they called it horse and sparrow economics. This was, you know, Warren Harding. It was, um, oh, who was the guy who was assassinated that made Teddy Roosevelt uh, McKinley, President McKinley? McKinley talked about, you know, horse and sparrow economics. And the idea was that if you feed, you know, if you feed uh, sparrow, it, this was all goes back to before there were a lot of cars and the people were still getting around on horses or in carriages drawn by horses. And so the, the streets were all covered with horse poop. And there were always sparrows trying to pick through the horse poop looking for some intact grass seeds that the horses chewed up because they eat grass. And so the theory is if you supplement the horse's diet, their grass and their hay, with a whole bunch of oats, there's going to be more oats that don't get fully digested, and they get passed through, and they show up in the horse poop. And so your sparrows are going to get fatter. So, you know, feed the horses, the big guys, more, more oats, and you end up with fatter sparrows, more prosperous, you know, working people. That was the theory. Give money to rich people, and working people will get some of that money. Reagan reinvented it, and they referred to it as trickle-down economics, you know, with this stack of wine glasses, and you pour extra wine into the top wine glass, and it spills down into the wine glasses below. But it's equally BS. It's just a, it's a nonsensical theory. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's up? Tom, one thing I want to say. I don't know how many people Soleimani uh, is caused to have killed, but I know how many Trump has caused to have killed. That's 176. Or 67. 
depending on the news report you're looking at. Okay, yeah. sorry, then maybe I got the wrong number, but that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, so you're saying that if Trump hadn't created a situation where it was dangerous for, for commercial traffic to fly, this, uh, this plane would have made it to, uh, to Kiev and Ukraine and, and on to Canada, 140 some odd of the passengers were heading, heading to Canada. And let me take it even a step further. Uh, if he gets into a war, thousands of American uh, boys and girls will be killed, and that will be on, on Trump's doorstep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Chaz, thanks for the call. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Hi, uh, I wanted to follow up on uh, your and Dr. Wolf's concerns about the economy being uh, a lot less hollow. Um, last night, uh, it was reported that Mack Truck, which is uh, in Allentown, is laying off 300 people hmm. uh, on February the 28th, and they said it's because the orders are just dropping, they just dropped off. Once their production run is done, they're just scaling back. Um, and if you, as you know, Mack trucks are very heavy duty uh, industrial transportation for very heavy capital equipment, the kind of things that are used by the oil drilling industry, the gas fracking industry, th- things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tractor trailers that we see on highways. Big, big trucks, but they're loaded with T-shirts, and they're made out of practically balsa wood. Mack trucks are the exact opposite. These are the, you know, the, the, the Abram tanks of, of transportation. Hmm. If they're beginning to scale back, that means heavy industrial uh, capital investment is scaling back, and that's not a good sign. And that was only one of the reports. There's also other similar steel industries in, in the area that make powder coatings for pipes, the pipes that transport, like the XL pipeline of oil and gas, uh, that coating company was sold off by a major conglom- multi-billion-dollar conglomerate. It's the first company I think they've sold off, if not ever, the first time in maybe decades, the three, four decades. Right. They just don't sell companies. They buy them and they build them up. So there's signs that a lot of the heavy capital investments from the you know the very capital-intensive industries are starting to scale back. And one last note about Mack Truck, just so people understand how big their market is. The photographs of the uh, assassinated Iranian general at the Iraqi airport, mm-hmm. in the background, when they show you this, this, the um, burnt remains, the truck that was right in there, M-A-C-K in stainless steel at the front, a Mack truck. Huh. It's a heavy industrial truck at airports as well. Right. Um, right. That's so you're seeing back. There's a problem. Yeah, go ahead. So that, that I, I, uh, normally you don't see uh, anything in the news around here. We've had unbroken economic expansion. They've been, you know, building skyscrapers. They've been building hotels. They've been building everything. I think when you were in Philadelphia, you were in our big convention center, mm-hmm. um, and you might have seen all this, the cranes in the sky. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot of steel being purchased, but that's, that seems to be over. That's another thing that these Mack trucks will be hauling around, a lot of heavy construction equipment. So it, it seems to be an indicator, a leading indicator, that a lot of capital investment, you know, big, large-scale construction, uh, big, large-scale Look at the Axios uh, Markets newsletter. Uh, They've got a newsletter devoted to the economy, essentially. Or you read the Financial Times, and there's uh, almost every day a report similar to what you're talking about. The question is, is that crash going to happen before or after the next election? It's uh, very interesting. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. Stephen in Douglasville, Georgia, says you're a trucker. You wanted to talk about this? Yes, sir. Adrian, Tom, uh, I've been listening for the past 12 years, Tom. Thank you. What I want to speak about, I've been in the trucking business for the past 13 years. I'm, I'm a home operator. Last year, I lost over 6000 last year. Wow. You know, and as you know, nobody's talking about the economy. I've been watching Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. I only listen to you on XM Radio. I don't listen to no one else. And I would like if you could reach out and have a special day for the truckers so they could call in and give you an insight of what's going on. It's very bad. So is, is your experience, Stephen, that the, and forgive me for hurrying this along, but we have just a minute till the end of the hour. Yeah, yeah. Is, is your experience that you're seeing a downturn in trucking and you see that as a leading indicator of an economy that's going to go, go south? Is that what you're saying? Oh, man. Yep, yep, yep. How yep. so? Going sour. Got any details? Because uh, for me, I usually make 4000 $4,500 a week. Now I'm making $2,500. Hmm. a week and uh 
you have many trucking companies, companies, Saladin, many more, went out of business, bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. I've never seen this since I've been in the trucking industry. You know, so much really? com- trucking company go in recession. And if you if you go online, you'll see it. A lot of trucking company go. You know, it's so, very bad. And, so this is worse than 2007, 2008? Ah, much, listen, 2009, when I bought my first truck, even though it was a recession, I was doing great. Real wow. good. Real good. Fuel price was, I know, fuel price went down cheap that time, $1.99 right. a gallon. Right. Now, in the Midwest, where I work at, it's $3.25 a gallon. You know, it's terrible, Tom. Terrible. Yeah. We need to address the situation. Fascinating. You know, we are the drivers of this country right here. Stephen, I got to run, but thanks, thanks for uh, sharing your experience. Uh, this is fascinating, fascinating conversations. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is arriving in bookstores on February 10th. More information is available at all fine bookstores. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. In part two, there's a deep dive into the economic royalist modern war on voting. And part three is the solution section, how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for the hidden history of voting. Join me on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco at the, for the Berkeley Arts and Letters series on Wednesday, February 19th at Town Hall, Seattle. Saturday, February 22nd for the Blue State Ball in Minneapolis. Friday, February 28th at Powell's in Portland and Sunday, March 1st in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. This book is the third in the series after the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment and the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America.